Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about this young man. And there's a vital link. When the young man comes to Jesus. We find that he uh, decides not to follow Jesus. Jesus then talks about the perils of riches, possessions. Then he talks about the rewards that God has for those who are his disciples in this life as well as in the life to come. And then there follows a parable about the laborers. So there's a trend that goes all the way through as we study this account. Because the ruler would not sacrifice his wealth in order to be a disciple and to follow Jesus. Jesus spoke about the difficulties that the rich have of entering the kingdom. And he did not say that it was impossible, but there is a qualification that we must meet if we were rich. And then Peter refers to what the apostles had left. Lord, we've left all in following Jesus. And that's when Jesus speaks about the blessings that God has in store for the faithful. And secondly, he says that one should serve the Lord, not for the rewards, but because of love. To be motivated by what the Lord has done for us and continues to do for us. It's Matthew that tells us that he was young. Luke tells us he was the ruler. And all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that he was rich. So we think of him as a rich, young ruler. And we're not told about what kind of rule he exercised. It's rather doubtful that he would have been a ruler in a synagogue because he was young. But it's just a general term. The young man was a spiritual mind. And he learned that Jesus was in the community. He ran to him. He didn't just casually wait until Jesus came by, as others have done. But we read that he ran to Jesus. And he was keen on meeting the Lord and asking him this violent, important question. And then when he reached Jesus, he knelt before him. He showed him respect as a teacher and asked a spiritual question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He didn't ask Jesus a question to, to try him. We find that many times by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, such as, is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar? Or the Sadducees' fantasy. And they said this woman had been married to seven brothers. Now, there's a resurrection. Whose wife shall she be? Or when he was asked in the law, what is the great commandment? Another question was, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Another question was, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And each time, Jesus gave a vile answer. They tried to put him between a rock and a hard place. Tried to put him on the spot. And each of these incidents said they tried Jesus, but not the rich young ruler. 
He was sincere. He had a question he needed answering and he knew Jesus would be the one to ask. Spiritually minded. When he comes up to Jesus, he says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He calls him good teacher and Jesus instantly responds to that good. He says, why callest thou me good? There's only one good, and that is the Father in heaven. And we wonder if he asked this question. Jesus, that is, to unwitting. Make the young man realize that maybe he's thinking about his deity. Why call ye me good? There's only one good, that's God. Do you really think that I am deity? Jesus is asking the young man. He did not deny his goodness. He did not deny his sinlessness. In fact, on various occasions, he spoke about these traits to let people know that he could not only work signs and wonders and powers, it showed them that he was deity, but he spoke about it. Let me give you two or three answers. In John 8, 29, Jesus uh, makes this statement. And he that sent me is with me. He that hath sent me, that's the Father, he is with me. He's not left me alone. For I do always the things that are pleasing to him. It'd be nice if we could all say that. I do always the things that are pleasing to him. That is, I'm sinless. Then he asked the question, which of you convicted me of sin? Now, I wouldn't want to ask anybody that. They all raise their hand. But nobody raised their hand when Jesus asked them that question. Which of you convicted me of sins? They couldn't. He was sinless. Also, we look at... Uh, John 1, 18. This statement is made by John, the author of this gospel. He's referring to Jesus. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him, referring to Himself. He's the one who has made Him known. We read in our Sunday school Bible class this morning, in John 14, when Philip came up to Jesus, he said, Would you show us the Father? And that will suffice us. Well, Jesus answers, Have I been so long time with you? And dost thou not know me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou, Show me the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I say unto you, I speak not from myself, but the Father. Abiding in me doeth his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the very works sake. So these are some of the statements that Jesus makes to show that he is dead. He's sinless. He's perfect. 
But Jesus is trying to lead this young man to believe in him as more than just a teacher. When he asked about the commandments, the young man said, well, yes, I've, I've kept those commandments. I've observed those all my youth. Remember the commandments that Jesus asked him? You know, the commandments. And he reminds him about the ten. But he doesn't start with the first four. He mentions, honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. But he doesn't mention coveting here. Later on, he'll bring that subject up. When he tells him what he must do to have eternal life. So the young man says, I've kept your commandments, or I've kept the commandments all of my life. So what must I do to inherit eternal life? I think it's wonderful that the young man had passed through his youth still keeping the commandments. Statistics tell us that between the ages of 14 and 24, most of the crimes are committed. He's passing through that age, probably still in that age group, but he's still observing the commandments. So, the first four commandments have to do with God. He doesn't mention these, does he? Specifically, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images and bow down and worship them. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt keep the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. So these have reference specifically to God. Whereas the latter six have reference to one's fellow man. And the young man is showing that he has respect not only for them but also for their rights. So his question about eternal life suggests that he thought, now this is a question. Did he think that it just could be attained by doing something great? Or was he sincerely seeking to know what the Lord's requirements are? Was he expecting the Lord to say, well now, if you'll train and you'll be able to run the mile in less than four minutes, You've got to make it. The Lord didn't answer that way, does it? The Lord doesn't give us things that are difficult to uh, accomplish. There's something that every one of us can do if we will only love Him and put forth the effort. But when He asks the question, uh, good teachers, uh, what, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do? Well, now, there are folks who are thinking that he's, he's, he's wanting to know what he can do to merit eternal life. The Lord doesn't teach that we can merit eternal life. It comes through grace. It's a free gift. We have to do something, and that's what he asked. What about the people on the day of Pentecost? Acts 2, 30, we'll start with 36. And Peter said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom ye crucified. And when they heard this, they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter tells them. 
what shall we do? We've committed the terrible crime of crucifying Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, what can we do? We have sins that need forgiving. And that's the way Jesus answered, was it not? When he said, repent ye and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 16 and 30 is another time when we find someone asking what he must do to be saved. The Philippian jailer that had the earthquake in prison. There was Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns. And when it happened, you know, all the gates of the doors were open and the jailer thought they'd escape. Paul says, no, we're all here. He takes them outside and he says, sir, what must I do to be saved? Now, nobody looks upon that question and say, now, is there something I have to really do? It's hard. Is there something I have to do to, to earn my salvation, to merit it? That's not the way the question was put, nor is that the way the question was answered. There are a lot of folks today that say, well, now, what must I do to be saved? You can't do anything. That's why they talk about grace only. If you did something, that would invalidate grace. But Jesus didn't talk like that, and that's not the way the question was put. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Not what must I do to merit eternal life? That was not the question, was it? He looked upon eternal life as a reward for some great feat? No. He thought about the grace of God. Now, Jesus' answer was, if thou wouldst be perfect. Now that's an interesting word. Let me challenge you. Can you find the word perfect anywhere in the New Testament that applies to Jesus as sinless? Moral perfection. Now, there are passages that talk about Jesus being perfect or doing a perfect work. But I don't think, and if you find it, I'd be happy to look at it. I'd like to know about it. Let me give you some examples. For example, in Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. We read, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the altar of eternal salvation to all those who all those who obey him. We have to obey him. When, you mean Jesus was not perfect until he died on the cross? Is that what he's saying here? Though he's a son of God, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. No. The word perfect there means he finished his task. He's talking about the goal that he came here to accomplish. The end, when he died on the cross for our sins, that perfected Jesus because he came and accomplished that. He's talking about what he accomplished. Or Hebrews 2 and 10, still in Hebrews. This verse says, for it became him for whom are all things and through whom are all things to bring many sons unto glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus was made perfect. He was already sinless. He was already perfect in a moral sense. But here he's talking about having attained this goal of having accomplished the mission that Christ gave him to come here. So, where you find that? Well, maybe we'll look it up. How about Luke 13 and 32? 
And he said unto them, Go and say to that fox, talking about Herod, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I am perfected. You mean in three more days, Jesus said, I'm going to be perfected? No. He's talking about today, tomorrow, and the next day. That's suggesting a short period of time. And the perfection means he's going to be crucified. And that's what he said. You go and tell Herod that fox. So none of these scriptures refer to Jesus' sinless life. He's talking about what he came to accomplish. Reaching the goal of eternal life is the question that the young man wants to know. So the main thought is, follow me. Isn't that what he said in Matthew 6, 24? If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We want to go to heaven, we have to follow him. But I'm afraid this young man was not willing to deny himself. Jesus said, sell what thou hast and give it to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Treasure in heaven, that's where the treasure is. The reward that is, is to be found in heaven. God always requires help for the helpless. You'll find this emphasized over and over in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. For example, in the New Testament, he said in Luke 6 and 10, for then as you have opportunity, work that which is good toward all men and especially toward them of the household of the faith. Or what about Galatians? Ephesians 4, 28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him work with his hands that which is good that he may have where to give to him who hath need. James 1, 27, pure religion, undefiled before our God and Father says, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. In their needs, you provide for them. And there are other passages. But more is asked of this young, rich ruler. He says, give it all away. Give all of your wealth. Now, people may wonder, why would the Lord expect more of him than of you and me? Well, he might expect the same of us if we had the same disposition toward wealth and had the wealth beside. This is what is generally called an ad hoc command. Ad hoc command. That is, it was special for this special particular purpose. To eliminate the man's stumbling block is well. So that he would come, that Jesus would come first in his life. Jesus named these commandments, we've already referred to that. So his countenance fell at the same. Because he just could not give up the wealth. He could not deny himself. He wanted eternal life, but that was too big a price. He just could not do it. The Bible says that he went away exceeding sorrowful. Because he wouldn't give up his possessions. I thought it had been good if we had the camera catch that expression on his face when he went away exceeding sorrow. I think it's interesting to notice that Jesus did not lower the standards he requires for all disciples. Because here was a rich young ruler. 
I mean, would it not be great to have in your disciples somebody that has that kind of prestige, influential disciple? No. Jesus wants everybody saved, but it's on the same terms. Obeying the gospel. Becoming his disciple. Jesus would like to have Bill Gates saved. Howard Hughes, uh, Paul Getty, uh, Walmart, what's his name, Sam Walton. Of course, some of these have already gone on. But they couldn't be saved any different than the way you and I are saved. So on this hearing, somebody said, on hearing of a conversion of a rich man, the man asked, is his purse converted? He didn't believe in a religion that cost a man nothing. We may not have wealth, but it's going to cost us a lot. But when we think about the reward and what Jesus has done for us, that should motivate us. The love that he has. Okay, we're getting close to finishing here. He said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. But Mark makes the point how hard it is for one who trusts in his riches. He's not saying that a rich man cannot be saved. If he trusts in his riches, that would put him aside. The Lord said it would be easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than to enter into heaven. This, uh, I think, is to be understood literally. It's impossible for a camel to go through a needle's eye. Now, it is proverbial to indicate it's absolute impossible. A man by the name of uh, George Nugent in 1845-1846 introduced the idea of a gate in Jerusalem for beasts of burden and a postern for pedestrians. Postern was too small for the camel or whoever to go under, but it was all right for an individual. And he called this postern the needle's eye. It would seem to soften the word of Jesus. But there's no evidence that it was so called in Jesus' day. And so the apostles, when they heard this, they were exceedingly astonished. They asked, well, who then can be saved? The Jewish concept was that if you had a lot of riches, that was a sign that Jesus, that God, had blessed you. Those were his blessings for you. Evidence of divine favor. Wasn't Abraham a rich man? He certainly was. What about Job? He was rich as well. Now if the rich, with all their advantages, cannot be saved, who can? That's their question to Jesus. With men, Jesus said, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Wherever we come from, we come from different backgrounds. We can all be saved. But we all have the same condition. Putting God first. If we're not willing to do that, we just, well, forget about going to heaven. But if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and you wouldn't be here this morning, I don't believe, if you didn't believe, 
Then we ought to be willing to confess that faith. Before men and women. He that confesses me before the Father, him will I also confess before my Father who's in heaven. Matthew 10, 33, 32. And we want to be baptized because Jesus teaches baptism saves. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Those are the words of Jesus. And you find the same statement over and over in the New Testament. Are you on the road that leads you to heaven? I had some more questions, but we'll just stop with this invitation. If you're not, can we encourage you to get on the right road? It's the road that we find taught to us in the New Testament. Jesus says he's going to judge us all by his word. We want to be obedient to his word. Not my word or somebody else's word. Or it's God's word. If you're subject to the invitation, would you not come as together we stand and sing?